Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. I've said in previous episodes that the act of interpretation can change everything. How we interpret what has happened, how we interpret history, how we interpret our dominant cultural texts can change the course of history. Interpretation can change our destiny. That is, on one level, what the story in Matthew is about. Jesus reinterprets Israel's texts, Israel's history. Jesus also reinterprets the propaganda texts of the Roman Empire. He not only reinterprets them verbally, but also acts in accordance with this reinterpretation. His actions reinterpret the whole culture and the whole society in a way that turns it all upside down. Throughout much of the story, Jesus has reinterpreted through teaching and through healing. In the passion narrative of these last three chapters, Jesus will reinterpret the texts of his society by facing his fears and meeting violence with nonviolence. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 63 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with verses 30 to 32 of chapter 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus says this to his male disciples, You will all become deserters because of me this night. That's the NRSV translation. It's ironic because the word for deserters can also be translated stumblers, and is the same word that was used when Jesus previously said in chapter 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would have been better for a heavy millstone to be hung around their neck and that person drown in the sea. In other words, it would be better for that person to suffer a horrible execution. Jesus is now the one who is causing those who believed in him to stumble, and he is headed toward a horrible execution. Then Jesus quotes Zechariah 13.7, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus not only predicts that his disciples will abandon him, but quotes a prophetic text that seems to have already predicted it. But of course, in their original context, these words are not about Jesus being arrested and his disciples fleeing and abandoning him. This quote serves a literary purpose in the story. It serves to signal that Jesus is following the prophetic script, as it were, and that all that is happening is happening according to God's plan. It doesn't mean that God is actually striking Jesus, directly causing Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. That is to read it too literally, and there is nothing in the story that would lead us to that conclusion. 
Jesus quotes the text to communicate to his disciples and to the audience of the story that God is in control and that he, Jesus, is following God's plan that anticipates and counters the nefarious plans of the authorities. The capture and execution of Jesus and the scattering of the disciples might seem like defeat, but God's plan incorporates these things in a greater master plan that will lead Jesus and his disciples to victory over the powers and authorities of this present age. There are a couple of conclusions that we might draw here. The first conclusion is that throughout this story, Jesus and the narrator quote texts from the Hebrew Bible in a poetic way, repurposing them for the current situation. We have previously seen how many of the texts that are quoted come from a context in their original literary setting of imperial oppression, envisioning liberation from empire, and so they are repurposed in Matthew for the current context of the first century in which Israel is under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And there is a sense in which the vision of the prophets, the vision of liberation, is being fulfilled. But not everything in the original context applies, only that which fits the current situation. In this case, what seems to apply from the original context in Zechariah is that during Zechariah's time, Israel was under the control of a foreign empire, the Persian Empire and that God's plan includes or incorporates the striking down of a leader, and that the plan also includes or incorporates the ingathering of the survivors. When Jesus says that he will go ahead of them to Galilee, it will be to regroup. There will be a regathering of the disciples there, and the wider text in Zechariah speaks of the ingathering of survivors. Like all of the other quotations from the Hebrew Bible, This one draws on some of the context of the quotation and uses the quotation poetically. In fact, it's not just that the text that Jesus and the narrator quote in Matthew are being used poetically. The texts are drawn from poetic literary contexts. Just go back and read any of the prophets and you will see that they are mostly poetic in their style. So the use that is made of them in Matthew is very consistent with their original context in that way even in their original contexts, they should not be taken in a strictly literal fashion. They are poetic in their original contexts and are used poetically when repurposed. The second thing that we can conclude is that although God is, in one sense, in charge with a grand master plan, the prophetic script, as it were, God does not seem to be able to just snap fingers and make everything right. God does not seem to be all-powerful, at least in that sense. So we have to readjust our idea of God and what it means for God to be all-powerful. In fact, that is at one level what this whole story is about. God's power seems to be the power of love. A power, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a power made perfect in weakness. A power that would lead someone to die for his people on a cross. That's why the prophetic script that Jesus follows is not to do some grand miracle that suddenly makes everything right. Instead, he must organize covertly, preach parabolically, and lead a new community in the way of the cross. That's the kind of power that God has. And that, then, is the nature of the prophetic script. Let's continue with verses 33 to 46. Peter said to him, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is described as grieved and agitated, even unto death. Although he has declared four times that he will be handed over to be executed, he now shrinks from it, asking God to let him off the hook. He does not want to go through with his own martyrdom, this horrible execution on a cross. Where is the divine Jesus that knows the future and is so sure of what he has to do? Here his humanity comes bursting through. However the audience in the story conceptualizes Jesus as the Son of God, the portrait being drawn is of a very human person who naturally does not want to be tortured to death. I have not been able to find a parallel to this action by the hero of a story anywhere in ancient literature a hero who is divine or semi-divine, who trembles when about to do the very thing that he has been sent to do by God and asks not to do it. This display of fear and trembling to the point of shrinking from the mission might be seen as dishonorable by the original audience of this first-century Mediterranean honor-shame culture. When he tells his disciples, I am deeply grieved, the Greek literally says, My soul is sad which likely is a riff off of Psalm 42, which contains this phrase three times. The Psalms are often attributed to David, so this may be more David symbolism. In the Psalms, David also cries out in fear and trembling for deliverance from his enemies, but nowhere is David said to have shrunk from his mission for fear of his own suffering and death. Just like with David, God does not seem to answer Jesus. But unlike David, who is ultimately, according to the Psalms, delivered from death and oppression, Jesus will not be delivered. He will go to his death. Again, David imagery seems to be present, but it is equivocal, may be subverted. The disciples are told to stay awake. Stay awake translates a Greek word that can also be translated keep watch. But the disciples don't stay awake or keep watch, rather they fall asleep. Stay awake or keep watch was used three times in the so-called Little Apocalypse of chapters 24 and 25, and it is used three times here in this scene. 
In the little apocalypse of chapters 24 and 25, Jesus used this word to urge his disciples to stay awake or keep watch for the coming of the Son of Man. Here, Jesus uses it to urge them to stay awake or keep watch for the coming of the mob that is coming to arrest him. So the coming of the Son of Man is linked to the coming of the mob to arrest Jesus to be crucified. One way to understand this is, as I have been saying, that the coming of the Son of Man begins with the crucifixion. Also, the last two parables of the Stay Awake series in chapter 25 were the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Staying awake in those parables meant resisting the brutal practices of the elites and instead creating a network and culture of mutual aid. The parable of the talents told of a slave who resisted his master's orders to build wealth for his master at the expense of others. This parable gave the audience an example of resisting the powers and authorities of this world, resistance that leads to martyrdom. The parable of the sheep and the goats revealed that those who properly kept watch for the coming of the Son of Man were those who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, clothed the naked, welcomed the stranger, and visited those in prison, thereby creating a network and culture of mutual aid, creating, as it were, the kingdom of heaven on earth, God's new society. So staying awake or keeping watch means resisting the brutal practices of the ruling classes and investing in a new society of mutual aid. In Gethsemane, we have the disciples falling asleep three times after Jesus tells them to stay awake. Each time, Jesus is close by, praying his guts out, grieved and agitated, because he is about to be tortured and killed. This portrayal of the disciples falling asleep while Jesus is praying, after Jesus has told them four times that he is going to be crucified, is a hyperbolic image. But it paints a picture of how we often fall asleep in normal life while other people are suffering, being tortured and killed by the system, sometimes not far from us, as in the case of unhoused people, or in modern capitalism, not far from us from the perspective of the resource distribution chain, people closely linked to us as the beneficiaries of their labor, such as those who make our clothes, harvest our food, and mine the minerals used in our cell phones. They are not far from us in the resource distribution chain. Yet we tend to mindlessly stop resisting an economy based on their suffering. We fall asleep. So staying awake or keeping watch means resisting the domination system as in the parable of the talents. It means enacting God's new society of grace and mercy as in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And it means being ready when they come to arrest us for these subversive activities. While many of us can, of course, do these things without fear of being arrested and executed, that has not been the case in many police states throughout history. Sister Diana Ortiz was raped and tortured in Guatemala in November 1989 for the crime of teaching people to read. Later that same month, Ignacio Martín Barro, a Jesuit priest, was assassinated in El Salvador, along with four other Jesuits, the housekeeper and the housekeeper's daughter. He was assassinated for the nonviolent resistance of his academic work in liberation psychology and for supporting a negotiated peace between the government and the leftist guerrillas. These are just two examples of people being crucified, as it were, for nonviolent resistance and constructive work to build a new society. Roman Palestine in the first century 
was a similar police state. Let's continue with verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. At once he came to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. A crowd arrives to arrest Jesus. With the exception of the crowd at the synagogue ruler's home in chapter 9, the word crowd has been used only of people who follow Jesus and have protected him and John the baptizer from those who want to kill them. For the first time, we have a crowd composed of Jesus' enemies. But this crowd comes at night to this garden on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus reminds them that he has been teaching during the day at the temple where they could have easily apprehended him, that is, if they were honorable people. Coming as a mob at night when they were afraid to arrest him during the day is, from the common person's point of view, dishonorable. Jesus highlights their cowardice to act honorably by reminding them that he taught in the temple courts by day. And, of course, there is Judas. He not only betrays Jesus, but does it with a kiss, as if approaching as a close friend, which he has heretofore been. This underhanded betrayal, even to a modern Western audience, comes off as devious and dishonorable. To an ancient honor-shame culture, that feeling would be amplified. This whole scene highlights the shameful behavior of the elite and their collaborators who oppose Jesus. Jesus tells them that they are treating him like a bandit. This word for bandit is the one that Jesus used when he was shutting down the temple and accusing the temple establishment of banditry stealing from the people through the racket of ritual sacrifice and the selling of animals for it. He outright accused them of being bandits out loud during the day, but they come under cover of night, under cover of darkness, to treat him like one. Again, their behavior is shameful in contrast to Jesus' honorable behavior. That they are treating him like a bandit will be borne out later when they crucify him between two bandits. This word bandit was used of revolutionary insurrectionists. It may point to how the temple elite view Jesus as a revolutionary insurrectionist. There may be irony here as well. Using a different word but with similar meaning, Jesus earlier referred to himself as a thief who would plunder their house. And he did that during the day when he broke into their house and plundered it when he shut down the temple and began healing people and teaching there. When they arrest Jesus, the Greek says literally that they laid their hands on Jesus. Jesus has laid hands on people to heal them. They lay hands on people to arrest and kill them. 
This contrast between Jesus and his opponents has been a theme in this gospel. The theme is further highlighted when Jesus stops his followers from resisting violently. Jesus says that he could call twelve legions of angels. Legion is a loanword from Latin and specifically evokes the image of a Roman military unit, a Roman legion. The number twelve evokes the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve units of angelic soldiers summoned to resist this crowd from the temple would be an Israelite resistance army to defeat the empire and restore Israel as a free nation. But Jesus resists this option, just as he resisted the option in chapter 4 when Satan, the spirit of empire, tempted him with throwing himself from the temple so that angels could rescue him. Violent resistance here would be seen as honorable, but Jesus acts even more honorably resisting the use of violence when he could easily use it. So throughout this passion narrative, we are beginning to see the script of the dominant culture, the old society, being flipped. Jesus, the hero of the story, fears death and shrinks from it, asking to be let off the hook, to be rescued from it, as it were. But there is no deliverance. The elite act dishonorably, under cover of darkness, and with the use of a violent mob. Jesus, who could command twelve legions of angels to liberate himself and the people, refuses to do so. We will continue to see this great reversal, the flipping of the script, as Jesus is put on trial. That is in the next episode. For now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about this podcast and give us reviews and ratings that will draw other people to this podcast. You can send comments and questions to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 63 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.